The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it was right there in black and white. None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Or as the King James says, if you do not forsaketh your possessions. And it could turn out that there's a big difference between getting rid of your possessions and denouncing or forsaking them, which might allow you to still keep them, but to change the way you think about them. We'll come back to that. But for two millennia, we see that Christians have, you know, indeed, owned things. Homes, jewelry, cars, collectibles, stocks, corporations, and on and on. I've never once been at a closing for a home when the uh, agent for the title company asked me if I was a Christian, and then I said yes, and they said, oh, well, you're not supposed to own anything. Haven't you read Luke 14, 33? It turns out Christians close on homes all the time, and no one thinks that it's strange, and yet Jesus' words hit us here right between the eyes. Indeed, there was probably no wealthier uh, institution in the world at, at particular points of history than the church itself. Uh, the church, and monasteries in particular, had become extremely wealthy. They had, uh, through the centuries, been gifts of, of huge uh, swaths of land or collectibles or art. When the uh, previous owners died, maybe the owner was hoping to get a little you know, benefit from that, you know, uh, get out of purgatory sooner if you left something for the church in your will. There were even instances where in order to get back into the good graces of the church, uh, kings would give swaths of land to the Pope. King John, the uh, son of Eleanor of Aquitaine, the signer of the Magna Carta, no less, he did exactly that in 1213 called the Treaty of 1213, when in order to get his excommunication off of his back, 
gave all of England and Ireland to the Pope. And voila, his excommunication was lifted. So forget money. The church in this instance got an entire nation from which they would, of course, collect money for centuries on end. There's actually a conspiracy theory called the Treaty of 1213 that says that the Pope, in fact, still owns uh, all of England. I don't have any thoughts on that. John Wycliffe, uh, you can tell I've been studying for this Reformer series, right? John Wycliffe, England's first Reformer, most famous for translating the Bible into English and making that the first English Bible, but he recognized immense corruption among the so-called mendicant friars. These were a collection of monastic orders that had made vows of poverty, and yet the monasteries themselves, while the monks were poor, the monasteries had become extremely wealthy. Worse than that, the monks raised money for their survival by begging. They begged from those who produced. Wycliffe argued that begging was not, in fact, a virtue, and that thousands of capable beggars were nothing but a drain on society at a time of scarce resources. Given that this was around the time of the Black Plague, in which like half of everyone died, yeah, I would say a few people begging instead of growing corn or something is not very helpful to anybody. Well, the point is that if Jesus says so plainly that if we are to be his disciples, we are to give up all of our possessions, as this translation says, why have none of us done so? Have we all just been hypocrites for the past 2,000 years? Have we just conveniently looked the other way when Jesus says what seems to be clear? Well, I think there are three possible reasons. The first is that Jesus intends this saying to be hyperbole or exaggeration. The second is that this is a hypothetical demand. It may or may not actually be put to the test. You need to be prepared for it, but it may never come to pass. The third, as I hinted at, it indicates a shift in your relationship to your possessions, a shift in your mentality, one that goes from absolute ownership, that you actually own it, to rather temporary stewardship of that which is God's. Well, let's consider each. Does Jesus mean this as hyperbole? Well, because in the same passage and multiple times elsewhere, Jesus literally demands from you your life, this cannot be an exaggeration. So, sorry, we're not going to get off the hook that easily. There are times in the scriptures where hyperbole is, a, is an effective uh, way of rhetoric or communicating, but this isn't one of them. Because Jesus says if we are to follow him, we are to carry our cross. So, Unless our possessions are more valuable than our lives, he's not exaggerating. Now that said, I think we do lose some things in translation. It's sort of troubling with this language of hating your mother and father, right? So I don't think we're actually to hate our parents. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere we are to honor our mother and father, and he upbraids the Pharisees and others for uh, taking advantage of that commandment and rethinking it. Uh, so the, the way of understanding this is that by comparison, so basically God always comes first, 
And so by comparison, this was a way of saying, if you love God, there are things that you can't love equally. Hate might be a strong word, but the point is that it's a, it's a comparative way of, uh, of, of thinking about it. Jesus says this in John 12, and he, he does talk about losing your life in this passage as well. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, but we're also commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So I don't think Jesus is saying we have to hate ourselves or hate our life per se. It's a matter of comparing two different things. Well, that brings us to number two, that this is a hypothetical demand. It may be put to the test. It may not be put to the test. Uh, This certainly has more of a basis in history. For we do see, indeed, people we would certainly consider to be faithful Christians who did own things, and we also see Christian martyrs who were uh, in a position to lose everything. In fact, hypothetical may not be the right word. Maybe I should say situational. Jesus is saying then that the disciple may not immediately be required to shed of everything they own, but rather that the disciple's mentality is to be ready and willing to do so if and when the situation calls for it. This saying of Jesus applies then when push comes to shove. In the meantime, though, before the persecution comes our way, before it begins to cost us things, our time, our money, our possessions, Can't the ownership of some things be proven to be good? What if it could be demonstrated that by owning things, that that is the vehicle through which they are a benefit to other people? Say a business that employs people, or a house that provides shelter, or money that is used to build a productive life. After all, I am pretty sympathetic to John Wycliffe's argument that a whole bunch of begging monks is nothing but a drain on society, for they are not producing anything for their neighbors. Getting rid of everything just makes everyone else starve. If the prospect of ownership is off the table, there is no incentive to build wealth from generation to generation, And the daily needs of even food and shelter cannot be guaranteed. And not to beat a dead horse, but in communist nations where this idea of property ownership was gone away with, you see exactly that, mass starvation and inability to spread information uh, and, and many tragedies besides. Jesus then is saying that the time may come when following Jesus will require the loss of everything. And when that time comes, the disciple must always be prepared. But until then, you may own things and use them in the service of your neighbor. Now you might be saying, ah, pastor, you must have forgotten about those early chapters of Acts when the first followers of Jesus sold all of their possessions and they laid it at the feet of the apostles for the good of the church. You seem to remember this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied about the profits they made on the sell of their property, and they were struck dead 
right then and there because they had lied about how much money they had made on the sale of their property. Isn't that something we all should be doing? Yes, in fact, all of you sell your homes and give it to me. No. In fact, uh, there's an interesting theory on this unique practice of selling property uh, for the benefit of the church in, in a, what you might consider a pretty extreme circumstance and an extreme action. And that was that they had heard Jesus speak about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And they took it quite seriously. They believed what he said. Remember, Jesus says, not one stone of this temple will survive. Uh, Within your generation, he says, uh, this is all going to be destroyed. And, of course, some people read that as the end of the world, and then people wonder why why didn't the world end by the year 50 or 60 or 70. Others argue that what he was speaking about was the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And that that did happen, in fact, within the generation of of not everyone, but many of those who were living at the time. And so I don't know if you are familiar with how property values work, but they're usually not worth very much when your city's been destroyed. Uh, When when Rome comes invading into Jerusalem and they destroy it, guess what? You know, you probably don't even own your property anymore. they, They probably take that entirely. But even if you manage to keep your deed... Uh, it's not worth very much. You're going to get pennies on the dollar. So you might as well sell short. Sell while the price is high, say in, I don't know, the year 62, you know, 59. Uh, You know, get good money, lay it at the apostles' feet for the the work of the gospel. After all, Jesus said your property is going to be worthless here in a few short years anyway. Now third, Jesus is signaling a shift in mindset from absolute ownership to temporary stewardship. So in effect, it is a change in relationship, not a change in ownership, if you will. This definitely seems possible. Indeed, the language of stewardship is right there in Genesis 1. The creator of all things, he gives only to humanity this right to be fruitful and multiply. Well, all things are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, even the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Uh, but we are to have dominion over the creation. We are to be stewards, therefore, of what God has given us. But that doesn't mean that they become ours in an absolute sense. Indeed, Psalm 24 says it so clearly. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So make no mistake, everything is God's. Of course, we can easily forget that reality, especially in a consumerist society. We come to see those things that we have worked so hard for, that we have paid for with our own money, or that we have inherited as ours. And in a civic sense, they are. Human beings possess the right to ownership of things this side of heaven. We can lay a claim to property. If not, then the commandments against theft would make no sense. Jesus, or, you know, God says, thou shalt not steal. Well, you can't steal something that someone else doesn't have a a right to own this side of heaven. But there's a big difference between the use of God's property for the benefit of our neighbor and an absolute ownership of that same thing. 
So, where does all this leave us? Well, this entire text is about counting the cost. Love the image of the of the king going off to war with 10,000 troops against 20,000 and the wisdom to send a delegate ahead of time and sue for peace. You know, you're probably not going to win the war or the battle. Let's, uh, let's count the cost and do the wise thing here. This is a response to the crowd, which had swelled in huge numbers. There's a reason Luke tells us that. Uh, but for all the wrong reasons, probably a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a response to the popularity of Jesus, which may have been very superficial. And it's a response to our embrace to that which sounds good in the moment without requiring what it may cost us. Now, I could make a long case for the moral goodness and the fruitfulness of being a productive Christian, of marshalling resources and people in cooperation, in building wealth, of leaving the world better than how you found it. But allow me to just cut to the chase and say that all of that can be very good, and most of that requires ownership, this side of heaven, of property. And yet for all of that goodness, there is still something better. Following Jesus, even if there comes a time when we must forsake our very selves, our very lives, money, possessions, a business, or church property. It demands our unequivocal commitment. The blessings will be beyond measure. For not only do we make this world a better place by our willingness to sacrifice, but trusting in Christ in a moment of crisis keeps us in his saving arms. So yes, if the day comes when we must choose between ourselves, our possessions, or the gifts of Christ, choose Christ. Anything less is not only foolish, but dangerous. Your reward will be heaven itself, and that for all eternity. Amen.